Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and love for us. We Thank you for your word that guides us and um, as we all wrestle with our own part in this story that you're writing, I pray today that you'd help us and give us clarity, that you would help us to see what we're called to. And we thank you for the way that you work through human beings. That you've chosen us as witnesses to your light and glory. So we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I grew up in the through the '90s in Chicago metro, the greater Chicago land area, and that means that there was a basketball team that was pretty good through the '90s. Um, I don't know if you've heard about them; um, they haven't been good since, really. But um, but there was this particular player that named Michael Jordan, and he ended up making some cartoon movie Space Jam um, that they just tried to do a reboot of. But MJ was, um, I mean, I would say the undisputed greatest of all time. And, right, I mean, this is, this is the loudest statements I'll get tonight from you, church. All right. So, <laughs> now, um, you know, I think that one of the things, though, is, it, so it, it kind of ruined me for basketball, and I still watch basketball some, but I, it, it, there was a certain kind of basketball that I grew up watching, and, and it, more recently, though, if you've been following anything, like if you, if you watched The Last Dance last year when it came out, or have seen anything from Michael lately, um, it's, it's fascinating because he's kind of a, a strange guy. Like, he's maybe one of the most singularly obsessed people that I've ever heard talk. And he has massive achievements, but also doesn't seem to have a lot of friends. He's somebody that, that has an obsession with the game of basketball. And I just saw an interview, like this, from the past couple of weeks where it was claiming that he ran a 4-3-40 and could throw a football 60 yards in his prime. And so, like, like asking, like, would you have played at football? And he said no, because he understands and, obs and became obsessed with the game of basketball. But, but it wasn't just basketball that Michael was obsessed with. It was, it was personal achievement. And being able to, it, it, was the, it, was, it was competition and being the greatest. Well, today, we come to the storyline. We're in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with John, to John chapter 1 with me. And we come today to the greatest of all prophets. And we know that because Jesus called him that. His name was John, not the John who wrote the gospel that we're reading. That's John the evangelist. This is John the Baptist. We might say the baptizer. He's Jesus' cousin. And there is a similarity that he was completely singular in his focus, that he was obsessed with the mission that he felt like his life was, was set out for. But in a, in a stark difference, he was completely unenamored with himself for his reputation. And so John is one of the most curious characters in the whole Bible. His life and ministry hold some important lessons for us. And so as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John today, we begin with verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And when they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do, you do not know. 
Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so John's life and ministry. Let's, we're just going to take a little bit of an overview because I think there's times when we read about John's life and ministry that it can feel so strange that it's hard to know if there's any tie-in for us. But I think there are tie-ins for us. And John, I wish that we had more detail on John because John was, was a strange guy. He was born miraculously. So if you go read it in Luke chapter 1, we read about his birth, that his dad worked in the temple. He was a priest. And, and he and his, and his dad and his mother had gone, were, his mom was barren. They couldn't have kids until they were very old. And an angel showed up to Zechariah in, in, in a vision and, and told him he was going to have a son. And so, and told him what he had to name his son. Elizabeth then carried John, and when and, and even when like he Elizabeth met up with her cousin Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, it, we hear that or we read that John leapt in his mother's womb, already indwelled with the Holy Spirit. John was a Nazarite, which means he took a vow that was that he really was on him from birth that he never cut his hair, he never drank wine. He ended up, he lived out in the wilderness, and he only dressed in clothes made out of camel hair, which sounds miserable. He ate locusts and honey as his regular diet. And, and then there was his baptismal ministry, which is what happens here, right? That, that there are authorities, religious authorities who are sent to him out in the wilderness, east of the Jordan River, in the desert, in the region, in Bethany, which was across the Jordan River, east in, there's two Bethanies mentioned in scripture, but this one in modern day Jordan. And they came out there and it starts, our passage today kind of begins with that, a question of like, who are you? It's more, more like, who do you think you are? Like it's an authority question. And so it, what is John doing out in the wilderness? Well, there's some context here that I think is important for us. Context biblically that if you remember back to the Exodus, that when people left Israel or left Egypt and were headed toward the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham, that as they, they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then when they entered the promised land, finally, they entered in across the Jordan River to enter. And so they had come from east of the Jordan into the promised land, and, um, which is today geopolitical. It's very, still very disputed area. And, and so John, as he baptized people, they had to leave the promised land, come east of the river and get baptized and then re-enter the promised land. So what, what was he doing with that? There had to be some intentionality to it. And, and I think this is part of the important cultural context of the time too. There were all kinds of different groups in Israel at the time who were working as hard as they could to bring in the coming of Messiah. And so it had been 400 years of silence since Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, had written. And, and God's people were left in silence under Roman occupation, wondering, when is God going to move? There were all kinds of promises through the prophets, particularly Isaiah, about Messiah, the anointed one who would come. And so as people looked ahead, they had different approaches. In a, in a settlement called Qumran, which was out near the Dead Sea, and you might know of Qumran because that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave. Qumran was a settlement that was settled by the Essenes, which is a separatistic kind of monastic group that, that was trying to, trying to become a righteous remnant through whom Messiah would come. But that was their expectation. The, I think when we look at the religious leaders of the time, like here, Pharisees are mentioned. If you read the Gospels, the Pharisees kind of come off like the bad guys, right? 
Like every time the Pharisees show up, you kind of get this sense of like, oh, they're the ones arguing with Jesus. They're the religious authorities of the day. The Sanhedrin is the power structure of the day. So you kind of get like the imagery in the, in the New Testament that the Pharisees are the evil empire. Like you expect Vader and his stormtroopers to walk in. But I think what was happening, not what was happening with the Pharisees is that they had the same goal as the Essenes. They wanted to see Messiah come. But the Pharisees did that. They were seeking righteousness and to build a righteous remnant through the law and by applying new interpretations of the law to the modern life that they saw around them. The other group in the Sanhedrin, you had the Sadducees and Levites, so the Sadducees and priests, and they also were trying to see Messiah come, but it was more through a strict adherence to temple worship. And, and they were skeptical of how the Pharisees kind of stepped outside the bounds of that to apply law. And then you had a group called the Zealots. You can guess by their name that they were not exactly passive. Um, the Zealots were a group that looked for militaristic means and thought if they started enough fights with Rome that God would reveal who Messiah was so that he could overthrow them. And so is John's ministry comes into the middle of all of this, and there are these groups, and you can read in Josephus and other ancient texts that there were others who rose up around this time claiming to be Messiah. We even see this in Acts, that the teacher Gamaliel in Acts uh, mentions that you know there were other groups that this happened, and when you killed off a leader, they all scattered, and he said then, if, but if this is a movement of God, we won't be able to stop it. So John steps into this, and John had a different take than any of them. Because John was baptizing people, and baptism was an, an unfamiliar practice to the Jewish people at the time. It was part of somebody, a convert to Judaism would go through a ritual washing, a mikvah, in order to come into the covenant people of God. And so John's method was one that was known, but, but John wasn't doing that as a communal work. He was calling people to personal repentance, and that was different. And most of the people he was baptizing were Jewish people. And so that's why religious leaders are saying, like, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing here? Who told you you could do this? Who told you this was right? But what John was then doing, I'm convinced, was he was working to purify a righteous remnant of people who would then re-enter the promised land as they came back across the Jordan and re-enter as the righteous remnant who would usher in the coming of Messiah. And so I think that's an understanding of what he was doing in his ministry. And when he gets questioned here and they say, who do you think you are? It's, he says, well, let me clarify this. I am not the Christ. The Christ is, it means the anointed one. The Hebrew translation is Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I think we often use it that way. And so that's why when we see the Christ, we're like, what? But that's why. It's, this is saying the anointed one. It's saying, I'm not, I'm not him. I said, what then? Are you Elijah? Because they had this expectation that Elijah would show up in the last days. Remember, Elijah was carried away in a chariot of fire, and he wasn't, so he didn't actually die. And in Micah chapter 4, there's a prophecy that says that Elijah would come in, in the end of times. And so they're asking, are, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not. I'm not. And he said, well, you're the prophet. And so this is talking about Moses, because he was the foundation of the prophetic work. Are you, are you reestablishing Moses' prophetic work? And John says, no. So they say, who are you? We need to give an answer to somebody. And John goes on to say, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so this is where we get John's understanding of his own ministry. Now, he's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has two major halves. The first 39 chapters are all about God's coming judgment on his people. Chapters 40 to 66 are all about the restoration of God's people. And so John here is quoting from the beginning of chapter 40. And so after all this proclamation of judgment that was coming through Babylon and God's people going to exile, this is how it turns. It says, comfort, comfort, my, pe my, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall be, become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." 
So John is saying that this moment where it was saying this is the coming of Messiah, this is the coming of the righteous king, the one who has been appointed by and anointed by God to restore his people is coming into Jerusalem and is saying through the desert, through the wilderness, make it a straight path in these winding mountain roads to make it easy access for the king to arrive and he's going to bring comfort and tenderness. Warfare is ended and God himself will come and be with his people. And so John says, I, he, he doesn't claim to be the one that's coming. That's the, the Messiah, the Christ. He says, I'm just the voice. Out here in the wilderness, crying out, make straight the way. And so this is John's own expectation of his ministry. So they said to him, so why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, he says, well, I'm baptizing with water, but one is coming. And, he, and here he shows, that he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, again, a little bit of cultural context here, because you might be like, well, that's weird. It's a weird expression. But, but a, teach, a, a student would follow a teacher and do almost anything for them. But no one would untie somebody's sandals or wash somebody's feet. That was a, a work that was reserved for somebody to do personally, or if they had servants, for the servants to do it. And so John sees himself even lower than the servants. And then you have his testimony. So in this section, he says, he tells them this person is here, and he said the next day, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he tells them how he knew that Jesus was this, this figure, how he, he knew that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He says, listen, and, and I love this little detail that's in there. John says initially, he, um, in, or, yeah, he says, I didn't know him in verse 31. I didn't know who he was, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. He goes on later on in verse 33. I, did not, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one. And so John here is saying, I didn't actually know him, but he saw something different in Jesus. Now, I don't think here that John is saying he didn't know him at all because John was his cousin. Like, they grew up together. But I think what John is saying is he didn't realize all this time that Jesus was the one that he was preparing the way for. He didn't have a full concept of who Jesus was. Which I've thought about this often. Can you imagine growing up around Jesus? Like, can you imagine being Jesus' brother or sister? Now, he had siblings. We, we know that. James, his brother, wrote a book and, of the Bible. But can you imagine that? Like, it, did you ever feel when you were growing up like your parents compared you to your siblings? Can you imagine if it was Jesus? And he was the firstborn. Like, he was the standard. Like, can you imagine that talk? Like, I mean, Jesus never dealt with this. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> and can you imagine, like, when you, you know, sometimes you want to trap your siblings just so you can make sure that they get the punishment you think they deserve? You'd never be able to trap him. And so John grew up as Jesus' cousin. I'm sure he knew Jesus. He, I'm sure he knew there was something special about Jesus. But he didn't understand the fullness of who Jesus is. He didn't understand that this was the one that Scripture had pointed to. Jesus' ministry certainly wasn't public yet. But now all of a sudden there was something that was different. Because John had baptized, we don't know, but, but, but I mean, potentially hundreds and hundreds of people that he had baptized in the Jordan River out in the wilderness as, a, as their sign of personal repentance. And as he was baptizing people, baptism is a beautiful thing, and it's a, a, it's a, a moving moment. And for Christians, it continues now as, as your entrance into covenant community. And so there's something beautiful and important about baptism that we can look back at. And if you've been baptized, say, like, I was baptized, and I, I know that I am I'm a part of God's family, the church, because I was baptized. And so it's an important foundational moment. But I, I mean, I've baptized a lot of people over the last 20 or so years of ministry. I have never yet had the heavens open and the spirit descend as a dove and God speak directly as I baptize them. If, I think sometimes Christians go into baptism thinking that that's what's going to happen. And then are baptized and are kind of like, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, it was an important moment. I'm glad that you were baptized. But there was one time that John baptized somebody, and that was the result. 
But the Spirit descended like a dove, and he heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my Son. And so John says, Well, that's when I knew. <laughs> he couldn't have messed it up. And so some texts here say this is the chosen one of God, where John says the Son of God. And in Isaiah chapter 42, we read that, and the expectations of, of who Jesus is and what was coming when it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so this is what we see in the text today. And again, I feel like if you're a Christian, then we might read this and think like, well, that's, John had a unique ministry. He was a unique guy. I don't know if I'm ready or cut out for camel hair and bugs. And, and if you're not a Christian right now, it probably just sounds like this is some cool story about a crazy guy in the wilderness. But I think there's application for us. And so that's what we're going to look at with the time that we have today. Five lessons we can learn from John's ministry. And so the big overarching idea, though, is what he said about Jesus. He identified something about Jesus here. And if you remember, the entire book of John, this is only our third sermon that we are in our study in John so far, the entire book of John is about Jesus. It's introducing us to Jesus so that we might believe. And so here, what we learn about Jesus is, behold the Lamb of God. And within that, there's five lessons for us. Because John did have an extraordinary calling. He is a fascinating story. I do wish we had even more on him, but, but there are some takeaways. Because John's ministry was one of preparation for the coming of Messiah. And if you're a Christian, then we are told that we are living in the last days. The days were between Jesus' resurrection and, and ascension and, be, and then his return. And so we are living in, prep, in preparation of Jesus' return. So first, confront false messiahs. I love this. This is part, a huge part of John's ministry. He had no fear in confronting false religion and false messiahs and bad outworkings of religiosity. And he had no problem calling people to repentance. That was what his entire ministry was built on. And I think we can hear those kinds of things, and it can become exciting and inspiring, and, 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 but it, we don't realize always how tough it is. Because we love a prophetic boldness, Right? when it's on the issues we think somebody ought to have prophetic boldness about. We get a little bit antsy when people speak out about things that we're uncomfortable with. We get even antsier if that prophetic boldness gets directed at us. But John had a prophetic ministry confronting false gods and false messiahs. Idolatry is a major theme of the Bible. It's not just limited to John's ministry. And it, the region, reason idolatry shows up so often in Scripture is because our worship shapes us. It shapes who we are. If we worship, thing, if we worship God, it leads us to life and wholeness and healing. But when our heart's affections turn toward other things and lift other things into the place that only God ought to hold in our lives, then it will lead us to our own destruction and despair. And so it, it, John was killed for it. He knew that well. Like he confronted Herod for sexual immorality. Who was Herod was the, the governmental ruler over the over the area, and he confronted Herod for adultery, and he lost his life. His head was delivered literally on a silver platter. Because false gods will always react with violence when they're confronted. So what's even tougher about this is that, that we might want to have a prophetic voice outwardly, but this really begins within our own hearts. And maybe the most difficult confrontation can be our own Messiah complexes and our need to be at the center of things and for all things to serve us and our identity. And I mean, how easy would it have been for John to start reading his own press and knowing some of the buzz circulating about him? But John knew what he, we read earlier in chapter 1, that, that he came to where, bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So that leads to the second lesson that we learn from John is to be humble. John had a clarity on himself and his calling. That's why when they asked him, like, hey, are you the Christ? He doesn't give a dodgy answer, right? He doesn't, like, leave it lingering, like, well, I'm not the Christ, but I'm preparing the way for him. 
I'm not the Christ, but God chose me to introduce him. He doesn't build any proximity. He says, I am not the Christ. They say, okay, well, are you Elijah? No, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Like his answers get shorter each time. John wasn't working for accolades. He wasn't working for recognition. He wasn't, he wasn't self-obsessed in the midst of it. But instead, John was out in the middle of nowhere. He didn't go to the cities. He didn't go to places where, where people... He, he went to places where people had to come and find him to be told to repent. Like, if you ever thought... Think about that ministry. I'm going to go to the hardest area to get to in the world so that when people find me in the middle of the desert, I call out their sin and call them to repentance. That was his ministry. Like, so for us, I think there's, there's some things for us to see here. That if we want to be used by God, then we need to be willing to confront idolatry and false messiahs, and also we need to have a level of humility and clarity on ourselves and our calling. I don't think, again, that this means that everybody is called to wear camel hair clothes and live in the wilderness eating locusts. Though, I did think about it this past week. Can you imagine John's perspective on Brood X. Can you imagine that? Like for us, we're like, this is a terrible plague. And John would have been like, God's provision has come from, <laughs> come from heaven. They are crawling up out of the ground. Look, we can feast. And so, and so and sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. But this is something we need to see, that, that a lack of humility can happen at any, in all of our hearts. It can happen at every level in every organization. And a lack of humility, our own pride, infects churches. Now, I, I know, and it is true, that, that it, we can point to pastors who have built followings around themselves and, and with the gospel as a megaphone for their own gifts rather than ministry be, their ministry being a megaphone for the gospel. We see that. It hits the news. It hits podcasts that people listen to. It hits, we, we hear those things all the time. But it's not limited to those who are in positions that are formal that way. And I've been in church ministry for over 20 years now, and I've seen it happen again and again and again. It happens when you see a youth leader in a youth ministry who twists a whole group of students' perspectives and leads them away from the church. Or a community group leader that gets mad and decides not just that they're going to leave a church, but they take their entire community group with them. A staff member who decides to do as much damage as they can on the way out. Or members who get frustrated and then stir up more frustration and division and dissension. And, and so often in these situations, they get messy and they get difficult and they get personalized where we get, it, it, it's put in front of us as if we have to choose which person we are loyal to and which person we're going to identify with. And if that, when that happens, that means we have to demonize the enemy or make into the enemy the, the, the other side. Listen, when stuff goes wrong in a church, when sin happens, it needs to be confronted and rooted out. That comes back to point one, right? To be willing to confront false gods and false messiahs. But within the church of Jesus Christ, there aren't sides. In Corinth, this, the church was dividing over, like some people saying, I follow Peter, others I follow Paul, others I follow Apollos, so I follow Christ. And they were dividing over each other. And Paul writes in and says, like, what are you talking about? Paul didn't die for you. Jesus did. There's one king. There's one side here. And listen, I, you should never be a part of any church out of devotion to any human being. That's true of Redemption Hill. Don't, I, I hope that you don't come to Redemption Hill out of devotion to any of our leaders, whether me or Chewy, any of our leaders in this church. We're going to let you down. We can't live up to the standard of being Jesus, and we don't want to. We have one Jesus that we point to together. We're nothing. We're all unworthy to untie the strap of John's sandals, let alone Jesus's. So John's perspective here is helpful for us. Like We might be a light that God, a lamp that God uses, but we are never the source of light. That's Jesus alone. We might be a voice that God uses, but we are never the message that we proclaim. We might express love, but we are never the source of love and life. That's Jesus. And so we need to keep a level of humility. Now, Chuck Swindoll, a pastor, said, humility doesn't lead us to feel inferior or to doubt our own worth. Self-loathing is not the path to humility. Thinking too little of ourselves is actually a form of pride. 
On the contrary, humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. John saw himself as God saw him. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So those are the first two lessons. The third lesson for us tonight is expect that God's promises will be fulfilled. John was saturated in holy expectation. He knew Isaiah top to bottom. He knew the passages of judgment from in the first 39 chapters. He knew the sections on restoration and what followed. He, and, but, but, and so he lived his life in that expectation, which is why he didn't have any fear of anybody, why he was willing to do whatever he had to in his life and whatever he felt called to in order to see people prepared for the coming of Christ. And so John, that came from his holy expectations. We don't live most days with that kind of expectation. I don't think we live most days with our eyes on the promises God has made ready for them to be fulfilled. And I think some of it is because we've been burned too many times. We get our hopes up only to have them crushed. I mentioned at the top that I grew up in Chicago in the 90s rooting for the, for the Bulls. That also means I've rooted for other Chicago sports teams. And it is an endless series of heartbreaks with very faint glimmers of hope. It's what being a real sports fan is, those of you who come from winning places. <laughs> the bandwagon will pass you by eventually. But it gets deeper than that. Many of us have been hurt by church leaders who have let us down. I get it. I have too. Some of it comes from family background issues, people in your life who have let you down, your parents, your aunts and uncles, your siblings, people who have let you down in your life. We can go even a little bit more pointed than that, though, and say it might be hard for us to trust and have an expectation and hope in the promises of God because we know our own hearts. And we've let people down. And we feel the weight of that and the shame of that, that, that we know ourselves well enough that we, we know that we can't even fulfill the promises that we make. And too often, if we're honest, we picture God as an idealized version of ourselves rather than us as a terribly finite reflection of his image and likeness. So it's hard for us to imagine that even an idealized version of ourselves can be faithful to the promises. But imagine how our lives would change. Imagine how different it would be if we lived with the expectation that God's promises are true and will be fulfilled. We would have nothing to be afraid of. We'd have, we'd have nothing to really worry about. We, we would no longer have to put our hope into human beings and human solutions and human structures and human institutions or human accolades and recognition. You would have complete freedom to admit when you fall short without any defensiveness or explanation because you know that your identity isn't in having done it perfectly. We'd have freedom from others' opinions, not in a toxic way of not caring or being unempathetic because that makes you a sociopath, but we would have freedom from being crippled by other people's opinions and expectations because we'd be living for the expectation of God's promises coming to their fullness. It's, this is the only way we have any hope to have real humility of a right perspective on ourselves and seeing ourselves as God sees us is to actually rest in the promises of what God is doing to redeem and restore all things and that we get to be a part of that work. And if we believe that, then it can free us from the frantic like FOMO that we experience in our lives of am I going to experience enough, do enough, taste enough, see enough, Am I going to have, be fulfilled enough in relationships that I have? Is it going to go the way I want it to go? And what am I missing out on if it doesn't go that way? If we actually believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that he is reigning and ruling over all things and that we have eternity in God's presence in a real heaven and earth that is renewed and restored, then there is nothing that we miss out on now that won't be given to us tenfold in eternity. So we'd have freedom to rest so expect that God's promises will be fulfilled. The fourth lesson is to be spirit-filled and scripture-saturated. Now, John was filled with the spirit from the time he was in Elizabeth's womb. It's one of the things we see in Luke's gospel. But again, I think we can look at a guy like John and say, like, man, 
that's just, I don't, I have a hard time connecting with that. I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not that great. I'm not filled with the spirit that way. But John wouldn't even claim the mantle of Elijah, the prophet. And we read in James 5 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So yeah, John was a powerful prophet whose prayers were answered by God. Elijah was a powerful prophet whose prayers were answered by God. And in James we're told, pray with boldness because Elijah was a man too and his prayers were answered. So there's hope for every one of us. And in fact, if you're a Christian, you're promised that the spirit of God dwells within you. You're promised that when you're suffering and, you're, and you don't even know what to pray, that the Spirit himself intercedes on your behalf and comes before the Father with groanings that are too deep for words. And so you've been given the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, and that's what leads Jesus to the way that he prays. Later on in John's Gospel, we have this beautiful prayer, the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and in that we read that Jesus comes to the Father and says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We make understanding God's calling a terribly mysterious thing. As if it's something we can't really grasp. I think sometimes Christians are more into, like we, we think, well, maybe God will work through like the Zodiac, or maybe God will work through these tea leaves, or through Turkish coffee grounds. And we have little, like we test it out a little bit just to see, because we're curious. The Bible's very clear that if you want to know what God thinks, if you want to be in tune with God's will, if you want to know how God works and you want to know our place in his love for us, if you want to experience the movement of God's spirit, if you want to have clarity and discernment and boldness and see the power of God at work in your life, those things aren't, it's not a mysterious thing that we have to do. We've been given God's word that lays out his will for us. We've been given his word and we've been given the promise sealed by the Holy Spirit and so, that, so that the Spirit can help us to see and understand God's word. This is how we will become more in tune with who God is and what he wants in our lives. John was called to proclaim a countercultural message, to stand apart from the world and speak boldly into it, to bring repentance and life And we're called to the same. And so if we want a ministry like John's, a life like John's, then we can pursue being spirit-filled and scripture-saturated. And then fifth and finally, point people to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now again, in what we read today, John didn't know who Jesus was, even though he was his cousin and he grew up with him. He didn't know just who Jesus is. And then when he says, when Jesus walks up, like John is being interrogated by these religious leaders and it says the next day Jesus walked up and it's almost like John like couldn't hold it in. Because <laughs> like, you see this in the Gospels that Jesus, like early on in his ministry, especially when he would heal some people or cast demons out of some people, that, that he would tell them like, just keep it to yourself. Don't tell anybody. Because <laughs> he was dealing with messianic expectations and didn't want things to move too quickly. And he knew what his real mission was. And so he kept like, encouraging people not to spread the word yet until the time had come. And so here he, he, after his baptism, he walks up and his own cousin is like, Behold the Lamb of God! <laughs> he takes away the sin of the world! This is the one! When I told you that there was someone who would come after me, there was a voice in the wilderness preparing the way, this is the one! He's right here! He can't hold it in. It's, he can't help but, but cry out about it, to yell about it. And, it, and, and why, you know, how did John figure it out? It wasn't because John was so smart. It wasn't, so, it wasn't because John in particular was so scripture saturated or even so wise in the spirit that he, that he identified this on his own. It was revealed to him when the spirit descended on Jesus and the voice of the father spoke and John had ears to hear. 
See, our own flesh can never figure out Jesus on our own. We can never logic our way into it on our own. There's never enough reading or study that we can do this on our own. Our hope is the same, that we would hear the voice of God saying to us, this is my beloved son, Jesus. With him I am well pleased. And you see what John says about Jesus. Jesus is the light. He is the son of God. He is the chosen one. There's a lot that could have distracted John. Again, there were all kinds of messianic groups here that, were, that had popped up and had risen up. So we have the Essenes and the Pharisees and Sadducees and Levites and the Zealots, all with different ideas of what Messiah was. I mean, for goodness sake, even the disciples didn't get it until after Jesus ascended, right? Jesus had risen from the grave and had met with his disciples. And when he met with them in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascended to heaven, the disciples were asking him, is this the moment? Like, do we get to... Do we get to go overthrow Rome now? And that's when Jesus is like, okay, I'll see you guys. They still didn't understand that his kingdom was greater than a political kingdom. That his goals were greater than just renewing and restoring the, the grandeur of the temple. That he had, he had something greater that he was shooting toward. But John didn't let those distractions get in the way for him. Though John even had points where he struggled and couldn't quite figure it out. But there, and there's a ton that distracts us in our world right now. And personal issues and family issues and relationship issues that have all been made more tense and more difficult because of COVID and responses to this pandemic and what we do or don't do and what we post or don't post and what we're involved in. And it gets into issues of politics. And then and on top of that, there's different battles happening between different Christian groups and denominations and organizations, whether or not they're ones that we actually belong to and ideologies that are warring against each other. And all these things can become massive distractions for us. In conversations that I have with non-Christian friends, this, this is the kind of thing that people often want to talk about as if it's the center issue and talk about the Christian ethics or talk about ideas about Christianity as they might understand it or about the history of the misuse of religion, including Christianity, or personal hurt that, that, that has been experienced from religious people. And all of those things are important, but they aren't the center concern. They're not the root and so there's an importance for understanding and learning and even denouncing false expressions of Christianity. But they're not the core of what we're, what we're proclaiming. Do you remember the Gospel of John so far has started off with audacious claims, saying Jesus is God. He created everything. Everything that we see was created by him or and through him, that, that he is the source of all light and life, that, that the word became flesh and God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He stepped into the darkness to overcome it with light and that, there, that he is the hope for all of us. And now the gospel can really be summed up by John's proclamation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, everybody stop what you're doing. He had a ministry of calling people to repent, personal repentance and baptism. And he says, stop everything. And look, this is where our focus should be. It's on the Lamb of God. This is packed with old covenant imagery of the Passover lamb and the sacrificial system. In Isaiah 53, that says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us going to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's saying Jesus is the true, the ultimate lamb. And that, that, on top of that, that he's the one who will take away sin. So it, uh, some, one song we sing says, complete atonement you have made, and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owe. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin, but not just individual sin, the sin of the whole world. It's not just for one people group. It's for everybody. The gospel is good news, but it's not culture-bound, and it's not restricted to any ethnicity or tribe or language or race. It's, it's restricted to region. It's, it's freely given to all people, to the whole world. 
This is why when we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glo- his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John says, we all have received grace upon grace. We remember back to Isaiah 40 that we looked at earlier and said, prepare the way of the Lord because the glory of the Lord will be revealed in all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Everyone has access to God's family and to worship their creator and be be cleansed and forgiven and renewed and reconciled through Jesus. And then when we get to Revelation, we have the vision of the throne in eternity. And what's the vision of the people gathered at the throne? It's people from every language and tribe and nation gathered worshiping Jesus together. But the focus in eternity is not on us and all of the different people that that have gotten there, our focus is on Jesus, the lamb who had been slain. And so this is the gospel. If you're not a Christian, then this is the good news of the gospel. This is what Christianity is about. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through his death and resurrection and ascension. He's coming back again. If you are a Christian, then when's the last time you told somebody? When's the last time you pointed somebody to Jesus? When's the last time that you, yeah, you had confronted false messiahs and you had an understanding of who you are, that kind of humility, and you had an expectation of God's promises, and, and you were, were saturated in his word, and so that there came a point where you were able to say, almost like John here, where it just bubbled up out of you, like, like look. Whatever we're dealing with, like, Look. There's one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, there's hope here. There's life here. There's truth here. If you want to see God move in your life, put yourself in a position where you're dependent on him to move to save somebody's soul. And then let the Holy Spirit do his work. So I think when we read about people in the Bible sometimes, we can lift them up to a level and think that we can never be like that or never learn anything from them. Like, okay, so when I was, to go back to my high school years, when I was in high school, I played basketball every single day. I could probably use that at this stage of my life. I don't know if my body would put up with it, but, but I played basketball every single day. And in that era, Every single high school kid who lived in the greater Chicagoland area, and probably broader than that, had a set of moves that we were trying to practice. If I went out to a basketball court today, I would still take a ball, back it into the high post, and try to hit a turnaround fadeaway. Why? Because that's what Michael Jordan did. And if you can perfect that move, it's unstoppable, even if you're not Michael Jordan. Now, I didn't have any delusions that I was ever gonna be MJ. But we might think the same about John here. And Jesus called him the greatest of all who had been born from among men, or from among women. But in Matthew 11, we have to finish that line. Listen to what Jesus had to say. In Matthew chapter 11, John had sent his own people, his own followers to Jesus to say, are you really the one? Because John, even John at this point had different expectations about who Jesus was going to be. And, John, and so Jesus quotes another section of Isaiah to him and says, Tell John, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So Jesus says, Tell John, go and quote Isaiah back to John so that he can hear that I really am the one. But as they went away, before they had a chance to leave, that Jesus turned to the crowds concerning John so that John's followers could hear Jesus proclaim an endorsement of his cousin's ministry and so it could get back to him and he says to them where what did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind well what did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing no those who are wear soft clothing are in king's houses so what did you go out to see a prophet yes i tell you and more than a prophet this is he john is he of who is written behold i send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way your way before you So truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he.
You see, we have the whole story. John didn't know how this thing was going to work itself out. But he had expectation that God's promises were coming to their fulfillment. We know how Jesus accomplished our atonement. We know that the de- his death on the cross, that the crucifixion was the glory of the Messiah. We know what Jesus' kingdom looks like and what he calls his people toward. We have seen the work of Jesus through his people in the church for thousands of years now. We have a great hope of his return and we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so if you are a Christian, you're a citizen of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And we exist, as Peter says, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his light. We exist to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because we can confront false messiahs and we can be humble and see ourselves how God sees us and expect God's promises to be fulfilled and and be saturated in God's word and led by his spirit so that we can point people to Jesus who is the Lamb of God. That's what we're called to. It's not a mystery, it's very clear. The question that comes to us if we're a Christian is, do you trust that it's true and do you trust that it'll be fulfilling? If you're not a Christian, this is what you're invited into. Christianity isn't just an ethic, it's not just a pathway to self-fulfillment, it's an invitation into a new citizenship, into a new kingdom. Putting our trust and hope in a crucified savior who conquered death with life. But it's audacious claims that Jesus is God who lived and died and rose and ascended and is returning again. But there's no greater source of life and light and truth and peace. So turn to Christ. Don't wait any longer. Let's pray. Father, we get so scared and so distracted. Would you forgive us and would you help us? I pray that your spirit would move now in our hearts and show us what you're calling us to and and show us our true identity as those in your image and likeness and show us people in our lives that you've placed in our lives who need to hear the truth. Would you give us rest and peace and a sense of your presence? We pray all this in the name of Christ, the one, the Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.